0: Welcome to the Cadenza Podcast, Sounds Edition. I'm your host, Tim Harrison. On this episode of Cadenza Sounds, I sit down for a conversation with electric bassist, composer, and band leader, Rich Brown. Rich took some time out of his busy schedule to sit with me, high above Private Studios, for an afternoon's conversation about his personal experiences with racism, being an electric bassist in an acoustic bassist's world, and how his diverse influences have fostered a desire to communicate in a voice distinctly his own. Rich Brown is a Canadian bassist, band leader, and composer based in Toronto. The Toronto music scene has been exploding with talent, and Rich Brown has been helping to fuel that shockwave, working with other top musicians such as Larnell Lewis, Robbie Botosh, Marito Marquez, Bartosz Adela, and Kevin Turcotte. A self-taught bassist, Brown credits an incredible list of influences, yet continues to evolve his own distinct style by being open to sounds and ideas beyond jazz and just the bass itself. Not content to remain only within the jazz world, Brown has been featured on funk, Latin, traditional Asian, Arabic, Portuguese, and Brazilian recordings. He has worked with such diverse artists as Jane Sibbery, Glenn Lewis, Andy Milne's Dap Theory, Steve Coleman and Five Elements, James Blood Ulmer, Vernon Reed, Rudresh Mahanthappa, and Bruce Coburn. As a band leader, Brown formed Rinse the Algorithm, whose debut album, Locutions, was released in 2008. The band garnered multiple National Jazz Award nominations as well as the Galaxy Rising Star Prize in 2010. Brown's solo work includes his 2014 solo bass album, Between Heaviness and Here, and the 2016 Juno-nominated release, A Bang, an accessible yet deeply intimate invitation to unify against racism, violence, and oppression. To round out his artistic talents, Brown can also be found on film and television in the motion picture, Glitter, and the TV movie, *Living for Love, The Natalie Cole Story, and the TV series, Soul Food. Recorded on April 10th, 2017 during renovations in the lounge high above private studios in downtown Toronto, for which I apologize to Rich and to the listener. Here is my conversation with Rich Brown.
1: Well,
0: fabulous, darling. All right. Oh, well, here we are. Here we are. <laughs> So thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. My pleasure. I've been, uh, I've been looking forward to this opportunity for quite a while. Me too. We finally dragged you out, kicking yeah. and screaming, <laughs> and you're here. Um, so first off, um, I'd like to find out some more information about Rich Brown. Who is Rich Brown, and uh, where does he come from, and what informs where he's, uh, he's going? So what I do understand is that you were born in Toronto, yes, and you moved to Florida
2: at some point in your uh, youth. Yeah, my uh, when I was nine, my family moved to Florida to Fort Lauderdale, um, and it wasn't the best idea Mm. in the world. uh, Fort Lauderdale is not the most hospitable place Hmm. for. uh, I'll just say it for a black family. I mean, we just had a hard time. Really. Yeah, my dad owned his own business, and, um, you know, we weren't rich by any stretch of the imagination, but, but, you know, we were all right. Mm -hmm. Um, So we ended up moving to this neighborhood, and we were the only black family in the neighborhood, and the neighbors didn't really take too kindly to us being there. So there was a lot of drama and a lot of harassment and many... uh, unpleasant incidences where, you know, different things would happen. Somebody knocked on our door one night and threw a smoke bomb into our living room. And and there were these kids that would shoot at my brother and I with BB guns as we got off the school bus. Oh, my God. But then on the other uh, side of the same coin, like, uh, we would take the school bus and then all the black kids at school would see us getting off the bus. With nothing but white kids, and then they were like, "Well, who do these guys think they are?" Mm. So we didn't. We weren't really liked by, you know, black kids or white kids. We were just sort of too black to be white and too white to be black, and uh, so we got the hell out of Dodge after a few years, and uh, and came back to Toronto. It was interesting because uh, we moved. Uh, back to Pickering Hmm. and um, we were moving our stuff into the house and there was the local Pickering news just sitting on the porch and I picked it up and the front page story of the Pickering news was about how some kid had gone into uh, Pickering high school and drawn a swastika like the size of a dime and police were investigating. I was like okay we're home. Hmm. That's that's how you handle those things. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, you know, uh, they were very formative years, but they weren't the most pleasant experiences being there. Uh, I guess if there's a plus side, uh, it's the fact that, you know, because I didn't really have any friends, I would just play music all day. Hmm. Um, Because even the kids in the neighborhood would get called inside if they were. Playing with me or my brother, or at least that was my experience. My brother's experience might have been a little, di- a little different. I can't speak for him and all of this, but but for me, you know, I I remember a number of times where I'd just be playing with this kid in the backyard, and then all of a sudden, the kid's parent would come up and be like, "You need to come inside right now, and you need to leave."
0: <laughs> oh wow!
2: Yeah, so Florida wasn't. Yeah, Florida wasn't the greatest place. And, uh, from what I can tell, not much has changed. So, really?
0: yeah, obviously we've, we've seen lots in the news. Yeah. Yeah. So when you, uh, decided to take up music or to play music, did you start playing in Canada and then continue in Florida or was it, was this something that, that sort of came to you while you were in Florida?
2: uh well my dad when I was a young kid my dad wanted us to learn an instrument and take music lessons so I picked up the guitar and my brother played keyboards and then I sort of put it down for a while and then we moved we made the move to Florida and uh I just listened to the radio and became more and more enthusiastic about playing and I got into like Van Halen and Stevie Ray Vaughan and and uh, and the funk and R&B that came on the radio at the time. And I'd played guitar at that point. Um, and I guess I was around 12 years old. Uh, so I hadn't even picked up the bass yet. I was playing guitar and getting into all these different guitar players. Mark Knopfler was another big one for me when I was a kid. Uh, and it wasn't until we moved back to Canada at around 17, that I picked up the bass mm. for the first time. I just felt like I wanted to make the switch, because uh, I'm not even sure why, <laughs> <laughs> to be totally honest. Uh, like most, most bassists that
0: started at guitar, I hear, took up the bass because there wasn't a bass player in the band.
2: Well, you know what? That's, that was the case for myself, as well. And there were a lot of guitar players in school where I was going to school in Pickering. And I felt like those guys were better than me. So, And everyone needed a bass player. So you're right. Like I, I decided I would just start playing the bass. And I also got into jazz at, at that time as well. Because hmm. uh, I heard or I watched a documentary about Louis Armstrong where they said that uh, he improvised everything that he was playing. And that was a concept that was new to me. I didn't really know anything about improvisation or just making it up on the spot. And I was so intrigued by that that I started to get into jazz at that point because I thought that kind of expression was something that I uh, wanted to sort of delve into and discover on my own. So I got into jazz around the same time that I got into playing the bass. And, and, uh, you know, it's still... uh, It's an ongoing journey. It's still... I'm still growing. I'm still a student. Still learning as much as I can, as much as I possibly can. You know, every day, and, and picking up as many influences that will allow for me to to grow. Mm.
0: Now, did the um, when you were in Florida and, and listening to music on the radio and and having the experiences you were having around you, um, how did that? Um, what types? What types of music would you go to for uh, that? that Represented your experience. Like, was there anything in particular that that sort of drew you in at that time? You mentioned Stevie Ray Vaughan, you know, very blues, uh, yeah. amazing blues player, uh, and even Mark Knopfler, who does blues, country, rock, yeah, what absolutely. have you. Was Was there something that drew you, or was it is it everything just bringing in more sound and and more ideas? I
2: think it's more the latter. I feel I feel like my tastes were pretty eclectic even at that age. So uh I I was definitely into the aforementioned guitarists for sure. Mm. But uh you know uh there was always reggae playing in my house. Like my dad just had a ton of records and he would play them all the time. But I also got into like New Wave and you know to this day I'm a huge Thomas Dolby fan. Nice. You know <laughs> uh <laughs> And you know Eddie Van Halen and um, and all of the sort of '80s funk that was happening around that time, like the Gap Band, SOS Band, Rick James. Uh, you know all this really heavy sort of funky music. I I really loved that stuff, but it wasn't something that I could really apply to the guitar in any sort of uh, serious way, other than you know just keep holding down rhythms. And I really wanted to learn more about the fingerboard and playing and, you know, getting all these licks. Because, you know, I'm like, whatever. I'm like 13 years old or something. I wanted to be the baddest. And I thought just playing some chords for a little while wouldn't be it. <laughs> uh,
0: Does that translate at all to your bass playing now? Is there a is there a, a well, sense of
2: that? There was. I You know, I went through a phase. And that phase sort of stopped uh, in my twenties because it seemed like for me as a young bass player and as a lot of young bass players, electric bass players, they, they want to do the same thing. They want to be the baddest. They want to learn the fastest licks and play the most outlines. And, and, uh, you know, after a while I just wanted to do the opposite of that. Mm. So I, uh, I just flipped, I, I thought, okay, I just want to be able to make the most out of the simplest melodies and and really explore sort of the sonic qualities of the instrument as opposed to, uh, you know, anything related to whatever, technical prowess or, or any kind of virtuosic. That's not really my thing anymore. It was. Hmm. I have to admit, but you know, as you grow and you mature as a musician, you realize that there are things that that uh, not only transcend, but they are also uh, timeless. And a really beautiful melody is timeless. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the stuff that stays with everybody. Whereas some really fast licks, uh, that doesn't really stick. That stuff is fleeting. In a lot of ways, because you're not going to be able to play that way, you know, as you get older, those those you know, your facility is going to fade. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, for me, it's it's really about making the most honest music and really uh, dedicating myself to uh, being a melodicist, you know, as opposed to a bass wizard. <laughs> uh, a name that may have
0: been applied to you here and there <laughs> I, I i i can i can say that i've heard those words indeed <laughs> now did you start out on a uh, a four-string bass and uh and move your way up i did yeah
2: i started <laughs> on a really horrible four-string bass where the action was like so far off the neck and uh and the sound was really bad. I think it was like something that my dad got at Sears for like 40 bucks or something. It was a horrible bass. <laughs> uh, and then I heard Jaco Pastorius for the first time and, and, uh, and took a screwdriver and very crudely just ripped all the frets out of the bass and was very interested in sort of playing fretless and emulating Jaco's tone. Uh, which that bass, you couldn't do anything with that. (laughs) (laughs) That was not going to happen. But yeah, I started on four string and then I moved to five. And then once I moved to five and started playing uh, sort of in the city in these different groups, I started getting calls to play in trio projects where it was just, you know, drums and bass and piano or drums and bass and saxophone. And um, the other melodic instrument, didn't want to take all of the solos. Mm. So I found myself taking, you know, more solos during songs. And I was getting way up on the neck on the five string going for these really sort of sweet notes. And I thought, well, if I'm way up here, I could probably get the same range on a six a little further back. So I'm not like, you know. Playing over my belly button or something. <laughs> um, so I got into I got into playing six from that. I decided I wanted to get more range in the middle of the neck. So I went, graduated to a <laughs> six string, and uh, uh, and I found that the more I played that, there were more uh, ideas that I could explore with the instrument. So it wasn't just about having more range in the middle of the neck. It was more about uh discovering what other sonic qualities that that instrument can possess. So, um, uh, I started, I stopped listening to bass players mm. and I started listening to different influence, different instruments to get some, uh, different influences. So, you know, I got into saxophone players and I got into African music cause I really wanted to emulate the sound of the kalimba mm. and, uh, singers, uh, Guitar players. I went back to listening to, to to guitar players. I feel like I feel like guys like Pat Metheny and John Schofield are just as much an influence on my playing as Jaco Pastorius, hmm. you know. And the same with Stevie Wonder and Steve Coleman and and so many other people that that do not play bass. Hmm. You know, I find that that's an important um, an important aspect of uh, anyone's musicianship. That's where you really grow when you start looking outside of your own instrument and gaining influences from from not only different instruments but also different genres. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really helps you to grow, I think you yeah. know.
0: Where did you start uh, moving from the basement, as it were, uh, playing bass, uh, to playing with bands or uh, being asked to join bands? Um, how did you graduate from being, you know, just playing at home into being out in, uh, in the clubs?
2: That, uh, that's a very interesting story. Well, um, where do I start? Uh, when we moved back to Canada and uh, started watching television and listening to the radio here, uh, one of the shows that came on much music at the time was a show called City Limits, mm-hmm. where they would play a lot of independent uh, Canadian music. And I, uh, through that show, I was introduced to a band called White Noise. <laughs> they were awesome. Uh, And I really got into the music. So the leader of the band had a radio show on um, CKLN, 88.1. And I would listen every Monday morning. He would come on. And, you know, he was great. His show was great. He would play everything from, like, Thelonious Monk to Ornette Coleman to Weather Report. to Just all this amazing improvised music. Uh, and I called him up, I called him up one day and asked if he had any of Jaco Pistorius' solo albums. And, uh, he said, yes. And from that question, he asked if I was a bass player and I was like, yeah. And he said, are you any good? And (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I I don't know. Sure. I'm just going to say, yeah, whatever. Uh, so he said he has this band and he needs a bass player. His bass player is taking off to go on tour with Dan Hill and he needs <laughs> a bass player. So I was like, sure, man. So, I, you know, I, I went to uh, his apartment. The band was all set up. These guys I never knew. And, and we just played and we had a great time and I got the gig. And that was my first gig in Toronto. <laughs> and, you know, because... Uh, this guy, his name is Bill Grove. He had uh he had this band, he had the band White Noise, but he was a bit of a a maverick on the scene and very well known and very popular and and, and musicians would come out and see uh his gigs when he played. So that's how I was introduced to a lot of other people on the scene because cool. through that I got calls from other people and got other gigs and sort of worked my way into um kind of the avant-garde scene, I guess you would call it, in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from there, it just sort of spread out. The more musicians I, I came in contact with, the more obviously the more gigs I would get, but it would also spread out in, into different genres where I would play more R&B music or play more world music. Or, uh, uh, but it was that initial connection with Bill Grove that really sort of put me on this path. Hmm. I owe that guy a great deal. You know, I, I mean I remember going to his place like the first time or the second time because I got the gig so then we started to work on the material <laughs> and he handed me a, a lead sheet and at that time I, I didn't know anything about anything if you asked me where a G was on the fingerboard I'd be like okay give me a minute okay mm. so that's an E that's you know uh, so he handed me this lead sheet and then we started to play and I was completely lost and he said man you don't even know how to read a lead sheet and I was like Sorry. Hmm. So what he did was he had me come over to his place like an hour before every rehearsal. And he sat me down at the piano and said, This is a two five one chord progression. That's what this does. Here's the function of that as it relates to this song. Blah blah blah. Um it was the most valuable bit of education that a twenty-two-year-old kid who knew nothing about music could could get at that point. Hmm. So I owe Bill a great deal, Bill. If you're out there, if you're listening, if you're listening, I love you, man. Um, Yeah, that's that's you know that was the real uh, starting point for me was getting into Bill's band and and going from there.
0: Wow. Yeah. CKLN Ryerson. Yes. Thought I recognized those uh, those call letters.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, they they used to have, I don't know if they still do, I haven't listened to a, uh, uh, the station in a while, but they used to have jazz programs every, every morning for like three or four hours. Hmm. And uh, it went right across the board. Everyone sort of specialized in their own sort of sub-genre of jazz music and you would get really straight ahead stuff and then the most out stuff you've ever heard. And I love that. I learned a lot just listening to Uh, morning radio on ckln Hmm. it's really great now did um, did you find it
0: difficult to fit into the uh, shall we say the jazz world in toronto I've, i've heard people say that it's it's a bit difficult to break into it's uh it can be a little isolated, um, you know, there's a lot yeah. of people who know each other and that's, you know, it's familiar and comfortable for them, but new new players coming in, it can be a bit challenging. Did you find any of that?
2: Uh, I, I feel like my connection with Bill Grove was a real uh, boost for me. I got a bit of a head start in that respect because I didn't have to start at the very bottom, you know? Um. But i can I can easily see where that would be the case for a lot of musicians who are struggling to get out into the scene and having to start at the bottom going to jam sessions and getting introduced to different people that way. So I do see that. I just feel like I was in a very fortunate situation when I started that i you know I, I skipped a few hurdles. <laughs> you know uh that being said, there was a lot of resistance because of the instrument that I played, the electric bass. Mm. From more uh mainstream, not necessarily musicians, but more uh mainstream people on the scene who were a little uh more influential as far as like you know radio play or getting gigs at certain clubs or or in certain festivals hmm. um, they didn't really see my place in the scene um but the you know all the musicians even the more straight ahead or traditional musicians they were all very welcoming um, but for me that was the hardest part like just breaking into um, breaking into a, a scene where the the more influential people out there were a little more resistant to what I was doing because of what because of the instrument that
0: I played do you find that that's still the case? Is there still some resistance to the electric bass as a as a a prominent jazz or even a, a lead jazz instrument?
2: Um, uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think it still is the case. The problem is, I can see their point in a way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, which is very strange to say. I you know I I feel like you know for me as an electric player. Uh, I hear a lot of other electric players, and I feel like the instrument is going in a direction that is not the most desirable. Everything is like so. Everything has become a competition. Mm. You know? It's like what I was. It's like what I was saying before. I feel like uh, young players are really into learning the fastest licks and the most outlines. There's there's a really fantastic bass player named Hadrian Farrell, who is Who has really set the bar super high Mm. because his facility is unreal. Like, I've never seen or heard anyone play that fast on the instrument. And he's also, you know, he's got this incredible vocabulary, but he knows so much about melody and harmony that you can still hear him growing and maturing as a musician. But, uh, you know, I feel like there are a lot of young players who are lifting those lines and getting that technique together, but they don't necessarily have the knowledge uh, as far as harmony and melody is concerned. So they just play really fast and really out, and I can see how that would turn people off of the electric bass. Mm. You know, So there is, there is a little bit of resistance, uh, but I feel like in some cases it's, Sort of justified.
0: (laughs) Okay, (laughs) fair. Uh, Does a lot of that uh, Chops Fest stuff come from frustrated guitarists turned bassists, or is it just an expectation that that's how you show that you're good?
2: I think it's become an expectation. Mm. Uh, I don't really hear a lot of guitarists switching over nowadays. Like now, I see a lot of bass players who actually started out as bass players, mm. which is interesting because that wasn't always the case. Um, and that's very cool. Uh, more power to them. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think there are more bass players out there who are just like, this is what I do, this is where I started.
0: You feel the the instrument has gained some uh, some strength and support in the in the industry. It's okay to be a bassist now, as opposed yeah. to before, where bass was sort of like the where, where the the guy who couldn't play as well on guitar goes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as yeah.
2: it were. Uh, yeah, I, you know, uh, um, I feel like that is the case, and it helps when you have players like Marcus Miller and Pino Palladino. And- mm. And guys like that who really play the music, you know, um, sort of waving the flag for the instrument, where people are seeing those guys and going, "Oh, I would love to groove as hard as that dude." Um, so I think it's I think it's a good thing now, and I feel like other um, other musicians uh, who are not playing the bass. Uh, are a little more welcoming of that now because uh, that aspect, because of people like Pino and Marcus Miller who just grew, who just laid down. Mm. Um, that's become cool, right? So people want that and and, uh, and it's sort of helped with the popularity of the instrument, I think. Mm.
0: Versus Mark King and his...
2: Uh, yeah, uh, putting all those <laughs> around his neck and stuff. <laughs> Uh, but I was heavily into Mark King when I was a kid. I, man, I used to love that stuff. I was all about level forty-two. I had, you know, I had the electrical tape around my thumb and the chorus pedal, and I had the bass like way up under my chin.
0: <laughs> that is a visual that I was not prepared for. Yeah, I just no.
2: Did. I mean, if I saw pictures of that now, I would just say, no, that's not me. That's not me. <laughs>
0: yeah. Is that guy?
2: Who
0: is that guy? <laughs> wow, yeah, that's, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I, I, it's not something that I would uh, I would have in mind. But uh, okay, <laughs> how do you approach um, playing both uh, the function, the traditional function of a bass player, um, yet still getting your voicing into others' music? So you know when you're when you're playing with, um, uh, just recently you're playing with. Um, uh, Louis, uh, Louis Amal, Louis Amal. Yeah, uh, just this past weekend, mm-hmm. I think um, you're still playing somebody else's music, but the the, the voicing of Rich Brown is there, oh, right? Wow. And and the the tone that you bring to the music is there, and it's it's obvious, but it's not. Uh, you don't turn it into Rich Brown's band, but your voicing is still there. How do you walk that line? How do you bring that voicing forward in somebody else's experience?
2: Well uh I f- you know, it's funny. I feel like living in Toronto is an advantage for that, mm. because um, the city is so multicultural, and Luis Samao's music, uh, specifically, um, delves into traditional Portuguese music and traditional Brazilian music, which is something that uh, I really love. And I got into a band years ago that, that was not along the same lines, but kind of had the same influences. And anytime I get into any of those situations, uh, I try to be as true to the genre as possible. So if I'm playing an African gig, I want to sound like an African bass player. Or if I'm playing, you know, in, in the case of Lewis's band, if I'm playing his music, I want to be true to that tradition. But um, all of the influences that have led me to this place are naturally going to come out no matter what I play. So, you know, in a way I got to be me, mm-hmm. but I also have to be true to the music that I'm that I'm playing um, no matter what the genre is. So even if I'm just playing like pop music uh, and just laying it down, I'm still going to do my thing but it's definitely not gonna get in the way of um, whatever tradition I might be playing at the time. Mm-hmm. I think that's important, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I th- you know, the best compliment is, is is uh, you know, I remember doing this Brazilian gig a little while ago and I got off stage and, and these dudes just came up to me and started speaking Portuguese. I was like, "Yes." <laughs> <laughs> Obrigado. Yeah, that's yeah, it. That's all I know. Thank it's them, hard. yeah. <laughs> so, I was like, "Okay, cool. So these guys actually think I'm Brazilian. Well, that's a great compliment, mm. you know." Um So that's, you know, that's the thing for me. They actually got mad when they found out that I wasn't Brazilian. But, oh, but <laughs> ah, uh, that's awkward. Yeah. But uh, you know, I mean, at least uh, at, at least in In their sort of listening to the music and getting that initial uh, sense of what I'm doing, uh, they made the assumption, Mm. which is a good thing. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, because you know it could have gone wrong. Could have been you know somebody just walking and saying, "What are you doing? You have no idea what you're doing with this music." Which I you know I don't want that to happen. I want to be able to to sort of represent, and uh, you know. That's always been the most important to me. Just really not just like establishing my own brand or forcing my sound on a particular style. Uh, I just feel like that's gonna happen naturally. So what I really focus on is is the tradition. Mm. Yeah.
0: Something that I that I really enjoy watching uh with uh great musicians such as yourself uh is the communication on stage and the humor that flows through music um you know when when somebody plays something that everybody understands is a joke yeah, yeah. or when somebody you know um uses the the facility they have on the instrument to to express something humorous in, in music. Um, do you find that that is something that flows naturally with you when you're playing on stage with a band? Do you have a give and take in that way? Do you introduce, uh, you know, a- as you're comping or you know, in, in certain circumstances, do you introduce that humor? Do you, do you start it? Are you an instigator of jokes uh, on stage?
2: <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, it depends on the situation. There are times where that's definitely not called for, and maybe even <laughs> frowned upon. But I've I feel like if I can gauge uh, where the mindset of the of the group is at at a certain time, uh, then sure, I'll you know I'll be the joker for a little bit. I find that it's really easy uh, with my band with Rinse the Algorithm. It's really easy because we've known each other for a long time. And we've played music together as a group for, jeez, I put the band together in two thousand and four, mm. so quite a while. And um, and we all have this rapport on stage when we get together. Even when the band is not necessarily playing together, we end up playing on different projects together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sometimes we'll even goof around on other people's gigs, but <laughs> <laughs> but using jokes that we've you know. Sort of developed in rinse mm-hmm. uh, so that's always fun i you know I always just want to have fun on stage and and uh, and and make sure that the audience is having a good time and and I think that translates I think that energy is important to uh everyone on and off the stage and you know i'm guilty i've been on stage uh and just been like a grump all night, which doesn't help. Anybody, mm. you know, and then there are times when I've been on stage where you know I'm just having, I'm literally having the time of my life. I can't think of a better way to spend whatever three, four hours. Uh, and that's the way I, you know, that's the way I want every gig to, uh, to play out. Mm. You know, um, I think it's important to have that positive energy happening at all times. It's what we do as artists, you know, you want to. You want to bring some good to the world. So
0: speaking of, um, so you, you talked about your your youth and the experiences that you had. Um, you just recently released a, a solo album, A Bang, which is... Played by the band The A Bang. Yes, right. I got to make sure I get that right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, the liner notes are very personal and very uh, politically strong and and uh, very socially aware. Um, talking about Black Lives Matter and uh, the racism and the uh, nationalism that that's growing these days. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously, I mean, you have a, a very personal experience with that. It's difficult for me to have that, that perspective because I, I've not lived that. But to see somebody else have that experience and still remain positive and still have a positivity in their music, how, how do you maintain positivity when, when you're taking mm. such, you know, very vital topics and, and having a, a very powerful statement to make, but still Allowing people to feel positive in some way when they when they listen to your music,
2: yeah, that's a very good question uh you, well, I think there has to be some sort of message of hope um it's it's easy to sort of sit in the despair um but you have to hmm. You have to take whatever steps necessary to make some sort of change, and I think hope is is one of the most important messages that we can um, apply to our own art. Mm. Um, yeah, I you know I was I was very hesitant about putting those liner notes on because I know how divisive those three words can be: Black Lives Matter. So I had to be very careful. But I also felt that it was important for me to uh, state my own feelings on the matter because I've gone through a lot, you know. And the fact that I still need to, that we still need to address this in 2017 can be really disheartening, you know, and uh, and depressing. And it could just make you want to, you know, put your head under the covers and just stay there. But if if my music can offer some sort of hope uh, or some sort of positive message in this weird time that we're living in now, then, you know, I know I'm not going to change any minds because things are so polarized right now. But, uh, you know, maybe it can lead to a discussion or something. Maybe it can lead to something where we're not all yelling at each other. Because it's not, you know, my audience is not going to be 100% uh, liberals or 100% conservatives. There's going to be a mix in there. And even if there's no discussion at all about politics during one of my shows, um, there's nothing divisive about what's going on on stage. So uh, I feel... I feel like that message of hope is universal. Whether you're on the left or on the right, everyone's sort of looking for something positive. And if I can if I can uh, supply that or apply that, then I'll take the opportunity to do so. Um, I don't want to be preachy about it, because that turns people right off. Hmm. But I think. You know the advantage of inter, of instrumental music is that it can it can create a, a personal uh, visual image. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I don't know. I feel like that hope. Uh, I feel like that hope can be s- something that's expressed and conveyed and felt and shared. Equally by everyone, no matter what their political leanings may be so uh, I think it's important You know, sorry, that was a very long answer. No, that's a great answer.
0: (laughs) That's a great answer Um, and and, you know, there's often the sort of stay in your lane concept uh with artists you know yeah where people are just saying listen go out and play music don't talk about politics you know and and i think that that's very narrow-minded and short-sighted because everybody has the opportunity to speak and this Absolutely. is how you speak yeah. right you speak in in tone it's just a different tone you're using a yeah. bass instead of a voice perhaps um so it uh, i for one um so I have a copy of, of a bang downstairs, downstairs. Uh, I have a copy of a bang and um, I hadn't opened it. I've, I bought it digitally as well as physically. I see. Yeah. Um, but I had read somewhere that there were some, some interesting liner notes. So I, I, I paused long and hard and then I finally opened it because I like to keep these things nice and wrapped and read them. And I thought this puts all of that music into a different context now. I get the direction like I understood how it applied right. how I perceived it but then reading those liner notes I could actually bring a narrative into it suddenly yeah, and I could yeah. understand the path that the, the 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 song's took and I thought that that was that was really important for me to have that experience and to read it and to see why you were presenting the music in such a way thank you and I think that was really important so so I I'm I'm a Fan, I think the music is amazing. <laughs> Thanks, uh, but much. that was a great experience to 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 have that journey and to experience it as music and then experience it as message, and to apply both. Yeah, and come out with something that's greater than the sum of its parts.
2: Well, you know, uh, artists have a platform, and you know, I remember hearing all the backlash that Meryl Streep got for speaking her mind. I just think that's ridiculous. You know, she has this platform; she has an opportunity to speak truth to power you know and why not take that opportunity and how dare anyone try to silence her for for her views Mm -hmm. you know um I don't want to go so far as to say that I have a responsibility to do so because some people do just they just want to play music and have fun and that's totally cool but given my past experience with uh, racism and all the weirdness that has gone on in my childhood, um, I uh, I do feel some sense of responsibility to to you know just shed some light and say this is what's going on, or maybe just hold up the mirror and say you need to take a hard look at what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I you know I do take that opportunity, but again. Again, I don't, I don't beat people over the head with it, or at least I don't. I hope that I don't. You
0: know? Yeah, I wouldn't say that that I saw any, you know, didactic behavior out of yeah, this. Yeah. It was, <laughs> you know, I, I, I experienced the music, you know, before the message right and then the message just added to it um and same thing with the with the the rents album the uh, locutions um i've heard you uh introduce songs on stage and give some backstory about some of those songs and having heard the songs first and then heard the backstory afterwards it's more of a one plus one equals five right Right. It, it gives me more of an opportunity to say now I get the context, this is more to me than it was before.
2: Yeah. I, you know, I, I, uh, when I'm on stage, I feel very self-conscious about speaking uh, to the audience. Uh, because I, sp- you know, I speak almost after every tune. Because I feel that there is a story that is associated with the music, or at least an image that I want um, the listener to, um, to see, to visualize. Um, and I, and I feel like making that connection is important, you know? So I will sort of explain the idea behind a particular song. And then when we play that song, hopefully it will make sense. A little more sense to the listener. That one, that one plus one equals five Mm -hmm. idea, uh, happens for everyone. Because that's the other thing. Like this is instrumental music and, it's a lot for it's a lot to ask of an audience to have them sit through you know two full one hour sets of instrumental music um, so I think this is a a great way to sort of bridge that that gap by giving the audience a little bit of work. This is what the song is about. see if you can um, understand the message or or see the visual. Like one of the one of the songs on the record is a song called "Parody of Esteem," which uh, is a song about mental illness. And every time we play that song, uh, when I come off stage, I always explain what the song is about, and and explain that it literally sort of illustrates uh, a breakdown or someone who's struggling. Um. And every time we play that song, someone comes up to me and says, Man, I totally get that song. I see, I heard everything, I see exactly where you're coming from. And those people aren't always musicians. That's the beautiful thing, you know? That's uh, you know, I think that's why the message is important, especially with this kind of music, because uh um, then you can really sort of open it up to people who uh might not necessarily be seen at a jazz gig or be interested in watching a jazz band all night. But this is, this is the way to sort of bridge that gap and get to everyone at the same time, musos and not. Non-musos. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I have to admit, I was one of the ones that came up to you after after you played that song That's right. and said, I absolutely get where you're going with this. And I... it was it was really important to me as somebody who's had that experience and who has suffered with PTSD and anxiety over the years. That to have somebody stand up on stage and say, I'm going to present to you an image of somebody who is in crisis. Yeah. And and to sit in the audience and to hear somebody say that publicly on stage and then present that picture was incredible. It's it's such Thank an you. experience to to have people in a room accept that moment. Yeah. And to to live in that moment with you for a bit so they may get a view of what it's like to have to deal with
2: that. But you know the other thing about that is um that's a really good point, but the other thing uh is there are more people struggling than are willing to admit. Mm -hmm. So anytime I introduce that song, there's always an eyebrow or two that's raised, uh, from someone who's also struggling. Mm -hmm. And then they realize, they sort of look around the room and see other people. Okay. So I'm not alone in this. So there's a little bit of a solidarity that happens as well that, that I'm kind of proud of, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I feel like this is what I'm talking about. Like, being able to sort of bring people together on different levels. I mean, this is not the the happiest of messages, Mm -hmm. but there's that hope, right? I mean, here I'm sort of giving an illustration of somebody who's really struggling, but there are always a few people, not just one or two people, but there are always a few people in the audience who are going through the same struggle. And if they can feel like they're not alone, uh, then that's the hope, and maybe even the change that uh, that I can maybe initiate, or or something, or help in some small way. I think mm. it's important. You know?
0: Well, I I certainly felt that way. I, it was that was a that was a great experience, as well as uh, just recently, uh, Rince did uh, a three night stand at uh, Jazz Bistro. Um, and I was there for the first night only. I apologize; I couldn't make That's it for okay. three. Uh, but uh, but you introduced uh, a track, the Purple Time. Oh yeah, and uh, it's actually always been one of my favorites. I just the groove on that is is fantastic. Um, but you spoke a little about the the genesis of it and why and why you play that song. Yeah, um, and that night that song went from a great song. To an incredible experience, because wow. of the uh, bringing us the audience into why it was important to you, and watching the band members uh, just start to just really bring it to a different level so that that audience communication that uh, that ability to bring the audience in and to uh, give them a visual you know mm-hmm. give them an idea of where you want to go and why you want to go there, I think is really important, and, and you don't see it that often.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, you don't. Uh, thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, no, thank you. <laughs> uh, so so I would say keep talking during your shows.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I will. I just, you know, I, I feel like instrumental music is a challenge for a lot of people. And I, I have to be cognizant of the fact that m- my audience is not You know, we talked about my audience not being 100% liberal or 100% conservative. They're not going to be 100% musicians either. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I really have to make the experience um, not just enjoyable, but something where, something universal. So I'm not just relating to the musicians or the bass players or whatever. I really want everyone in the audience and even the guys in the band to have the exact same experience—that's uh, really important to me, you know—and that makes for a much better, more enjoyable experience for everyone on and off the stage. Um, so even when I'm introducing these stories and talking about like what this, these songs are about, it's not just for the audience; it's for the band as well, because I want them to to interpret. The idea behind the songs as well, so now everyone is sort of focused on this this one idea you know uh so I do feel that it's important. you know maybe I talk a little bit too much, maybe I have been talking a little bit too much uh, but I feel that I feel that it's an it's impo- it's an important thing for me as a composer to sort of get the idea across to the audience so that they know. Uh, why certain things are happening with the music, you know.
0: Nice. Um, you also released a solo bass album. Yes. Uh, which uh, I've heard you introduce tracks on stage and say, "Don't be afraid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be afraid of solo bass. It's not scary." Um, and and it's a very uh, mood-oriented album. It's not. Uh, it's not. Uh, a chops fest. Yeah. It's uh, it's about setting a tone. Um, what brought you to wanting to do that
2: tonal album in and of itself? Uh, Well, there were a few things. There were a few sort of ideas behind putting that album together. I started to just, uh, for fun, I just started to write these solo bass pieces. And I would play them between, you know, between songs at gigs. And they all got a really good response. Um, So I decided to explore that a little bit more. Um, And because the electric bass has had this weird stigma for so long about being, you know, uh, uh, whatever, fully sort of chops-oriented or whatever. Uh, I wanted to create something that would be the complete antithesis of that. I wanted to create something that would be listened to in the same way that you would listen to a classical recording. Mm. Because I like that mood. I like being sort of, that sort of serenity, you know? Uh, And I was also listening to a lot of um, different styles of music. I got into... Uh, an Armenian musician named Jivan Gasparian. I don't know if you know him. He plays an instrument called the duduk.
0: Ah, yes, I yeah. love the sound of a duduk. Right, absolutely love it. Yeah.
2: So I, I had a couple of his records, and I really got into the, the mindset, and I wanted to create something similar. The song Beacon, mm. oh not Beacon, uh, Borealis, mm-hmm. is, uh, is kind of an ode to Jivan. to Jivan Gasperian, hmm. uh, in the way that it's set up, that there's this drone, and then these little sort of melodic phrases that happen over the the drone for the in, for the entirety of the piece, uh, and then the 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 melodies sort of develop into these different things, and then everything just sort of comes back down. Um, but I like the mood that that sets, and and. And the idea of sort of maintaining that particular mood for an entire album, I found intriguing and challenging. And it was something that I really wanted to explore. And uh, so I went in. A friend of mine offered some studio time at his house. He has a home studio. So we went and recorded all these tunes. And then when I listened to everything from top to bottom, I, I, I thought, yeah, this this is exactly what i wanted to say exactly what i wanted to do you know uh so i'm very proud of that record and um i feel like it does do that very thing where uh you put it on and it immediately puts you in a mood and and again hopefully you know it's one of those things where if you're not having the best day <laughs> Uh, it can turn that around a little bit for you. It can give you that little bit of serenity that that we need. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. From his solo bass recording Between Heaviness and Here and recorded during our conversation, here is Rich Brown performing Lua. So I recently saw uh, an iteration of Dap Theory in Toronto, yeah. um, and you sat in for a track. Yeah. Um, I was there with, uh, with our, uh, our common friend, Bartosz Hadala and oh, he yeah. said, Rich will be sitting in. <laughs> I said, oh, I see. <laughs> um, and uh, one of his close mm-hmm. friends was, uh, from school was playing in the band and was playing to Duke interesting. Oh, right. yeah, yeah. Um and uh and you sat in and the brought the house down as as <laughs> as per usual. Um but uh, tell me a little about uh the influence that you had on dap theory or dap theory had on you and how that uh, you know adjusted your outlook on music and and the direction of your playing.
2: Uh well, wow. Uh where do I start? Where do I start? <laughs> at the beginning. Yeah. Well, the beginning was 1999 uh, when I was trying to get the Steve Coleman gig. Yeah. Um, and Andy Millen, who's the leader of Dap Theory, was in Steve Coleman's band. He did a bunch of records with him and toured with him. And I was such a huge fan. And uh, And they would play in Toronto at this spot called the Bamboo, which is no longer there. <laughs>
0: The late lamented Bamboo. Bam. Yeah, man,
2: <laughs> that place was hot. Um, but uh, I would always be there front and center. And I had all the albums and I would practice to all those tunes and, and all the sort of intricate patterns and cues and things. Like I studied that music up and down. So I remember talking to Andy after a set one night and said, look, you know, I'd really love to get this gig. And I felt particularly confident because there was a sub on bass who really wasn't cutting it. So I thought, I could do better than this guy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Andy said, Yeah, you know, send me a tape and I'll send it to Steve. So I sent the tape and uh, it never got to Steve. Andy called me and said that he's going to be doing some recordings, some demo recordings for a record that he's putting together, and asked if I'd be willing to fly to Washington, D.C. to record the demos. I was like, absolutely yeah um so i did and those demos ended up being part of an album called uh the new age of aquarius uh which is the first of two records that i recorded with dab theory that music there's so much about that band that has influenced me not only as a bass player but definitely as a composer um and you can hear, I think you'll be able to hear the sort of the parallels between Dab Theory and my band. And, you know, it's no accident. Like I spent a lot of time with that music and I love that music. And, uh, you know, it for me at that time, it was the best musical situation for me. And it had such a major influence, um, specifically with, you know, rhythmic patterns and and different kinds of harmonic structure, uh, that sort of worked its way into my compositional voice, I guess. So the influence is definitely, I would say that it's one way, <laughs> where, where DAP Theory really influenced my direction uh, in such an invaluable way. Like, I, I'm very grateful for the experience and what it has Done for my uh, progression and my growth as a musician, um, and it was fun, man. It was fun to get back up on stage with those dudes and just play that tune. And it brought back a lot of memories. I'm sure it did for Andy as well. Uh, but yeah, that's you know that's that's been a major influence. It's, I I I feel like you know especially with this latest record, the a bang. Uh, there's a heavy Dap Theory influence and there's a heavy influence from uh, some of the artists that I've worked with in recent years, uh, Vijay Iyer and Rudresh Mahantapa and Steve Lehman uh, in particular, those three guys. uh, Because I feel like they've taken that music, the music of Steve Coleman, the music of Dap Theory, and they've added like these different elements that are so personal and so interesting and I thought if I'm going to do this I have to figure out uh, my own way of doing it so it doesn't sound like oh he's just doing the Dap Theory thing or he's just doing the Steve Coleman thing Mm. so it was those other influences that allowed for me to sort of discover that like who I am who am I playing this music you know Uh, and in one case it's a name
0: on the album,
2: right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rudresh. I love that guy, that guy's my brother, man. Uh, so the first song on the album is dedicated to him, and uh, it's called Mahishmatish. Uh, uh, do we have time for the story? We, we have time for the story. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rudresh, uh, you know, he would play these shows in New York and and uh, he'd get home and he'd still be wired you know he wouldn't want to go to bed like right when he got home so he would turn the TV on and there would be I don't know if you remember this but there would be this guy named Esteban who would have these hour long infomercials selling his guitar lessons oh, and and his music and Esteban was like this sort of pseudo flamenco dude uh <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, you know, I'm not a fan. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but Rudresh, he just found the guy so interesting, you know, and, and he became sort of addicted to these infomercials. So then it turned out that uh, the wife of a friend of his was doing PR for Esteban. Uh, so Rudresh said, look, I need this guy's autograph. It would be great if I could get an autograph. So the dude went to his wife and said, look, if you can get uh, an autograph from my friend, Rudresh Mahantapa, that would be great. So she went to Esteban and asked him for an autograph. And, uh, and Esteban said, great, what's his name? And then she blanked. So she made up a name. She said, <laughs> oh, no. she said yeah, it's for, uh, it's for my husband's friend, uh, Ruchin Mahishmatish. <laughs> 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 uh, so Mahishmati stuck. Even now, when Rudresh calls, like it says Mahishmati. <laughs> <on me. laughs>
0: that's a great story. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and uh, you know, that's that song. I mean, to me, it, it sounds like something that Rudresh would write. Hmm. You know, I really wanted something that would sort of reflect his energy and his spirit. He's such a wonderful guy. And, and really giving and really funny and, uh, you know, uh, my experiences with him on the road have always been super positive and really fun. And and I wanted all of that to come out in this song. Uh, And, you know, what better way to title it with something as crazy and whimsical as Mahishmatish. (laughs) (laughs) Oh,
0: that's great. Yeah, I love that yeah people don't get rich brown wrong that
2: often no no (laughs) i got called rich brand once on the radio i was like how do you mess up brown yeah it's interesting (laughs) wow yeah well
0: (laughs) whatever it's it's another story in the arsenal that's exactly (laughs) it yeah man so now you have uh, rinse the algorithm sort of 2.0. are feels like it back yeah. in back in style yeah. with uh, with uh, with rinse. Uh, you know, you, I saw you do a couple of warm up shows uh, out uh, out in the uh, the West End. Oh and, yeah, yeah. And then uh, and then you brought it to the uh, to the jazz bistro the and jazz brought bistro. the house down.
2: That was uh, the best.
0: Unbelievable! <laughs> it was it was quite a thing to behold. And and you, you've got such amazing players with you. You yeah. know, um, Larnell, Louis, Robbie. Yeah. Just it, it, does this feel like a new beginning? Or does it feel like a continuation of of what Rince has been? Do you feel like this is the start of another upswing of, of where you want to go? Uh,
2: that's an interesting question. I feel I feel like it could be a new beginning for this band. Although, you know, having said that, I can't get over-enthusiastic about that because the reason why the band stopped playing was the fact that uh, Robbie and Larnell and even Lewis were getting very busy with other projects so I I, I couldn't um, I felt like I couldn't call them after a while because they were always away Mm. you know or always had other commitments so I thought You know, I have this new band, I'll just focus on that, and then Rince will sort of go the way of the dodo. Um, But then Larnell called uh, to do a show in Quebec City and asked if Rince would be able to get together and and play a couple of tunes. So we did that, and it felt amazing. Uh, And then I I got a chance to talk to uh, Robert Sputt Seawright, who's the other... Drummer in Snarky Puppy. And he came up to me after the set and was like, Is that your band? I said, Yeah. He said, Well, these are your tunes? And I said, Yeah. And he said, Well, does this band play very often? I was like, No, these guys are too busy. And Spud said, Well, you need to make this busy. And I thought, That's such an obvious. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> 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 so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, f- Trying to focus on getting some more work for the band. But I am—I um, realize the fact that I'm going to run into the same hurdles the more I try to to book them. I, you know, I think the the way to do it now with this particular group is to figure out when the guys are in town and then book dates mm. uh, around those times, as opposed to the other way around, where you get a date and then you send out a message, are you guys around for this? Um doesn't always work out that way but i think this could be a little more productive you know as far as getting more gigs for the band and i'd really like to um, i'd really like the next album to be another rinse album mm-hmm. so yeah I'm just sort of putting pen to paper now and trying to write some more music that would be a little more indicative of the first album without sounding like locutions part two Mm -hmm. because I feel like compositionally uh, a bang was such a departure. It was a real um, sort of exploration into different compositional ideas. Uh, And that is kind of the focus of that band. Whereas Rents is really about these four guys Mm. just making great music, you know. So I I think I want to focus on that uh, relationship when when I start writing for this next album. Uh, because even though the same guys like, it's basically Rinse on the A Bang record. Mm, right, yeah. But to me, it doesn't sound like a Rinse record. So I, cu- I couldn't in good conscience go that route. So I just put it out under my name. And then hopefully the next album will sound like a Rinse record.
0: Well, I guess it's all up to the composer, right? It's That's the, the thing. the mindset of the composer and yeah. the direction you want to go that you feel is important.
2: Yeah, and, and I feel like that, in hindsight, that was a bit of a misstep that I had made where I started writing all this, this music and uh, immediately making the assumption that just because the four of us are playing these new songs, it's just going to sound like Rinse the Algorithm. And I realized, like even during the first rehearsals, that that was not going to be the case. Like it just sounded like something completely different. It sounded like I had hired these three guys to play these this new material,
1: mm.
2: as opposed to it actually sounding like "Rinse the Algorithm." So, uh, so I went in a different direction, and I, you know, I I feel like that's the one. Hmm. I hesitate to call it a mistake because it wasn't really anything that was all that unfortunate. But, uh, but I feel like I should be for the next album. I should probably write more with the guys in mind. Hmm. You know, so hopefully the next Prince album will be out. Who knows? Soon, man, it's soon. coming soon.
0: soon. <laughs> well, I look forward to it. For one, you'll know, you me both. Yeah. <laughs> well, I will buy an album. I will digitally download an album, and I'll show up to the shows. That's the best I can do. <laughs> that's, that's if you plenty, give me a man. job playing a cowbell on it, <laughs> I will. I will show up. I'm happy to do so.
2: You give what you wish for, man.
0: <laughs> well, I don't know if my home studio downstairs is so prepared for uh, uh, for that, but. <laughs> well, make it work oh what a kind (laughs) what a kind soul you are um so uh and uh, for myself um you and i met uh i don't know probably a year ago maybe well i guess two years ago you were playing with uh, uh, bartosh and uh, i was absolutely inspired by by your playing and your approach to to bass um I am very much on the the periphery of the 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 music industry in Toronto. I'm just a a, a passionate sponsor of other people's dreams. Um, <laughs> I like that. But uh, but when when I had something that I wanted to do, uh, which was the New Shores project, I approached you and and asked if you'd be interested in in donating some track time and some some music, and uh, and you were very receptive to that. And, oh yeah. And I really appreciated that. That's that's it's really important to me that that to hear people are interested in, in adding a voice, you know, when we talk about, you know, adding your voice to, you know, the black lives matter, whether it's the movement or the, the concept of people understanding why it's important. Um, I felt that there was at least some political alignment that, that you and I could understand and, and, and be on the same page. So,
2: um, I really appreciate that you've offered to do that. That's fantastic. It's, it's my pleasure. And, and again, I feel like it's my responsibility. And especially with this project, I feel like uh, once that ridiculous election was over, there was a narrative that was being put forth by the right where they were trying to tell people that globalism doesn't work, which is an argument that falls flat on its face, like right out of the gate. Like, we live on one planet you know? And we are one human race. So why, why not take the opportunity to help each other when we have that opportunity? It just doesn't, doesn't make any sense to me to hear someone say that globalism doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It's just maddening. So, you know, I I didn't hesitate. Of course, I would say yes to something like this.
0: Well, I appreciate that. It's, uh, it's still a work in progress yes. as, as I try and put it all together. But... Uh, but, uh, I look forward to, to having you on board and, and having the, the, the sound of your voice from a base perspective uh verbally written in any way uh <laughs> as part of that to, to help support refugee resettlement so it's thank pleasure, you so much for that
2: well thank you for the opportunity and
0: thanks for sitting down and spending the time today i mean it's uh, it's now gotten a little gray outside but uh, but at least we've had some good uh, weather and, uh, and a yeah. great conversation
2: well thank you yeah. thank
0: you rich i really appreciate it's it my pleasure brother. wonderful
2: thank you very much
0: To learn more about Rich Brown, please find him on Facebook at Rich Brown and his Facebook page, Rich Brown Electric Bassist, or follow him on Twitter at Rich the Algorithm, spelled R-I-C-H-T-H-E-A-L-G-O-R-I-T-M. It's missing the H. To find Rince the Algorithm's Locutions album and Rich's solo work, you can visit his Bandcamp site, rinsethealgorithm.bandcamp.com, or check them out on iTunes. For more information on the New Shores Project, to which Rich is a contributing artist, please check out newshoresproject.org or at New Shores Music on both Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Cadenza Podcast, Sounds Edition. Look for new episodes, including the Scenes Edition, a video podcast companion, and live special editions featuring performances from notable artists.